This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. Project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute based out of Southern Vermont. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. Find us at indigo.radio on Instagram or download a previous show on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. Indigo is now broadcasting out of Southern Vermont, Western Mass, Atlanta, Seattle, and Morocco. This is Anna in Atlanta for Indigo, and today's show airs an interview I did with Umema Mohammed. Umema is a Palestinian MD and PhD student at Emory University in Atlanta. I sat down with her to talk about her experience of separating herself from what she calls the silence of Emory in regards to the genocide taking place in Gaza. She talks with us about her own history, health and medicine as political, her open letter to Emory, international solidarity, and what she calls, quote, victory outside of empire. Thanks so much for joining us. Umaima, thank you so much for being with us on Indigo Radio. I was talking to you about how I understand our own identities arising out of historical conditions and how we ourselves are shaped and influenced by historical forces. And I feel like this would be a good way to start is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and in that, if you might want to talk to us a little bit about your mother in 1967. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I am one of many Palestinians in the diaspora, one of millions, and one of a few here at Emory. And many of us are strongly shaped by our family histories and experiences of exile that has led us here as children of the diaspora. 
And I talked a little bit about my mother's story of expulsion and her family's expulsion out of Palestine, which unfortunately and sadly is a shared experience among millions of Palestinians. Most people are familiar with the Nakba, which occurred in 1948 and is translated to mean the catastrophe and correlates with the beginning of the state of Israel when more than 75% of Palestinians were exiled just in between 1947 and 1948 with the creation of the state of Israel. This was the first mass exodus of Palestinians outside of Palestine, but there have been many others and we're watching what happened today. My family was exiled in 1967. So that's what we call the Nexa, which actually translates to the setback. So the Nexa, or in 1967, Israel illegally occupied the rest of Palestinian land, which people know as like the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, my mom is from Hawarat Nablus. And in 1967, along with another half million Palestinians, she and her family walked out of their home on foot after their homes were taken by Israeli militia. And so my mom grew up as a refugee in Jordan, and so did my mom's side of the family. They lived through Black September, which I won't go into details about, but there was targeting of Palestinians in Jordan at the time. And eventually we landed here. And so we carry these stories obviously in our lived experiences. I think all the time about the fact that my grandparents never got to return to Palestine. And it was like my grandfather's dying wish to die in his home and we could never go back. Uh, my grandfather actually worked for what was considered like, kind of like the BMV in Palestine at the time. And so he was considered a government worker. So he was actually imprisoned by the IDF in 66 for a year and tortured for a year. And because of that, because he was considered a terrorist, because he worked for Palestinian government officials, my family was not allowed to return until he died. And so it was only after his death did my aunt get to return to Palestine. And even then, our homes are gone. And the homes that we could invest in could be taken away by Israeli government officials or the IDF at any point. And that's what happened. And so my, my aunt couldn't even stay and raise her family there and actually had to leave again. And so these histories of exile and displacement, we carry with everywhere. Even when people ask me the simple question of like, where are you from? Or what do you consider your home? I have never been able to answer that question except to answer like Palestine is where I'm from. And that's where my home is, even though I've never stepped foot there. I was born in South Dakota and I've lived all over the U.S., but none of those places have ever been a place for me. And so I've always grown up hearing these stories from my family and finding kinship among peoples, not just Palestinians, but other black and brown and indigenous people who have shared experiences of exile and colonization um, and displacement. And that was really how I got politicized was through that lens mm. in my early like teenagehood once I realized what does it mean to be Palestinian and having the rude awakening of when you say Palestine in class, people are like, that's not a real place or, you know, it's anti-Semitic to say the word Palestine. Those are the things I grew up with mm. as a teenager. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I would love to know more about what it meant for you to become politicized? Honestly, growing up Muslim in America, it's really difficult to stay away from being politicized. Regardless of whether you want to or not, US politics and imperialism are like infused with your everyday interactions with people. I grew up in like rural Virginia and I was like one Arab kid, the only Arab kid in this entire school. 
the only Muslim kid in this entire school, in this entire district probably. Like we had to drive an hour to the local mosque, which was like somebody's house. You know, it wasn't even like a, it's actual individual structure. And from the time I was like a kid, people would call me terrorist and raghead and all of these like defamatory racist characters. And so it was like, whether I wanted to or not, I became familiar. You know, I would like, I was like, in fifth grade asking my parents, why are people calling me this? I didn't understand. And so all of those experiences helped me understand where this is coming from. And this is coming from like US imperialism, colonization and racism. I will never forget this like one experience. When I moved to Indiana, I was like volunteering at the school for like student council, I was in high school. And I remember this kid came up to me, I was wearing a black and white hijab so he was like maybe six or seven years old. And I'm like volunteering at this bounce house situation at the school for credit. And he came up to me and he looked at me for a long time. And he was like, are you a nun? And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, and then he looked at me again and he was like, are you the people we kill in war? Wow. I actually didn't have a response. I just looked at him. And then he like walked away to his parents. <laughs> and in my head, I was like, I guess I am. And so when those are like common experiences to you, whether you want to or not, you're going to be politicized. Yeah. You're directly affected by U.S. imperial politics, right? Mm -hmm. I also like grew up and I talk about this all the time as we watch the public brutalization of Palestinian bodies, as we watch the public brutalization of black bodies in this country. I grew up seeing dead brown Muslims on TV every night, every night. There was bodies that looked like my family's bodies like stacked up on the television. How do you not get politicized? You know, when that's your experience, mm -hmm. when you see this is what's happening to your community, things become really clear, you know, at some point. Yeah. So all of those things combined, right? Growing up post 9-11 America, uh, in post 9-11 America, just being like in touch with what dominant narratives were in the country that you live in, around your people, around your culture. Um, and of course being Palestinian adds another layer to all of those things. Yeah. And so I would say I got politicized from a really young age because of those experiences. Yeah, thanks for that. And tell me about Emory. So we're here at Emory. Can you tell me what you're studying and where you're at with that at Emory? So I'm currently an MD PhD student at Emory. This is my fifth year here. And um, in terms of where I'm at in my training, I've had a little bumps in the road, but right now I'm technically in my first year of my graduate program, so I'm currently in the sociology PhD program. What are you hoping to do? What are you studying? So that's a great question. So I was an organizer before I came to graduate school full-time, and I was organizing around Islamophobia, Palestine, resisting like surveillance in mosque and Muslim communities. And when I made the decision to go to medical school, I knew that I Healthcare was just another system that perpetuated racism, colonization, structures of violence. And I was committed that if I was gonna enter this institution that I would find some way to counter structural violence in healthcare. And so I had sort of decided that maybe doing a PhD in social sciences would help me do that. So when I applied, I realized that physicians are sort of, whether they know it or not, see structural violence and state violence on the most intimate level. They know exactly what that harm does to somebody's body, to their mind. I, um, before I went to medical school, I was shadowing a primary care doctor 
in a community hospital in Indianapolis. And a lot of the patients that we saw were undocumented. And a lot of them came in with complaints that I had realized were related to abusive labor. So um, these patients were working seven days a week, 14, 16 hour shifts with no breaks on their legs. So they came in, you know, young men with like severe and painful varicose veins, for example, things that you should not see, except that people's conditions are causing that. And I remember thinking like physicians are at this unique opportunity where they see at the most intimate level what structural violence does to our bodies, to our cells, to our tissues, from the molecular to the psychological levels. And when I had sort of like made that connection, I was like, there is an opportunity for physicians to operate as like counter hegemonic to structural violence. You know, they bear witness to what state violence to systems of oppression do to us, you know, so it should be their responsibilities to, if anything, like advocate for their patients, advocate against these policies. What I wanted to study initially was how can, especially primary care physicians, um, how can physicians conceptualize resisting state and structural violence as a form of preventative medicine? And by being influenced by the tactics of community organizers, how can physicians organize the way that communities organize to disrupt, to agitate within healthcare and medicine for our patients, right? And I remember thinking, going back to that example in the community hospital about these undocumented patients, young men with varicose veins, we would have these same incidents come in, I mean, all day, every day. And in my head, I was thinking, wouldn't it be more effective if physicians mobilize against labor policies in Indiana and change those labor policies rather than, you know, trying to treat these patients who are uninsured so they can't actually qualify for the simple surgeries, for example, that it would take to remove those varicose veins. And so that's kind of where that approach came from. Mm -hmm. Today, it's become a little bit more nuanced. I'm interested more in abolitionist medicine. You know, med medicine is a very carceral system. And a lot of people have actually written about this. You know, like at Grady, there's like literally a jail, like at a hospital. And a lot of medical practices, you know, mimic carceral tactics. And so what does it mean to decarcerate medicine? And so that's some of my research interests. And now actually after October 7th, I have shifted a little bit in my research interests and I'm now thinking about what does it mean to conceptualize victory outside of empire? And by that, I mean that you know, Western empire has defined victory as how much land you can steal, right? How much money you can accumulate, how much, how many bodies you can exploit. And there are resistance and liberation movements all around the globe, including here, even at Emory, who resist these definitions of victory. What does victory mean when we conceptualize it outside of the definitions that like white supremacy has provided for us? What does victory mean as mutual aid? What does victory mean in every moment we decide to dissent against structural violence? So that's kind of the direction that I'm moving in now. Mm -hmm. That's great. While you were talking, I it made me think about, so my studies were in public health, and one of the person uh, people that I've read a lot of, and was actually one of my introductions to public health, was Vincente Navarro, who, mm -hmm. He was out of uh, Johns Hopkins, and he's a political scientist, and he talks about medicine in similar ways to what you were saying when you were talking about the structure of medicine today, and he has this piece where he talks about, 
it's not just medicine, it's capitalist medicine. Mm-hmm. So like medicine is reflecting the political economy in which we live within. Right. I feel like that's a lot of your, what you're saying also. I want to talk then about this letter that, that you wrote, because the way that you and I got in contact is, was via me seeing that there was an open letter written to the School of Medicine, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And so just on the heels of what you were talking about with medicine, I would love for you to t- talk to us about why you wrote the letter, and then we'll go into having you read a couple excerpts from it. Sure. I think about this question a lot, even today after I've sent that letter. Why did I write this letter? There's several reasons I decided to write this letter. One of the reasons actually, and probably first and foremost was for myself. Coming to this campus while Palestinians are undergoing a genocide, coming to this campus while administrators and faculty continually repress Palestinian voices and those in solidarity, felt like coming to a graveyard. You know, there's this like concept in Islam that whether you're alive or dead doesn't matter. It doesn't have to do with like whether your heart is beating or not. It has to do with the state of your soul. And it really felt like people's hearts were like calcified and hardened to what was going on. And it became like really intolerable for me to come to campus of just watching people go through their like day to day while like we wait on the phones to see if our families are dead or not every morning, you know, while we watch our children be executed like live on Instagram. And so I really wrote it first to separate myself from what I felt like was a graveyard. And also, you know, I pull a lot of my spirit of social justice from my faith. And I do believe that there will be a day where those who are oppressed will ask the world where they were when they bore witness to this violence. And I kept thinking to myself, will these 30,000 Palestinians forgive me when that day comes? Have I fought enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Have I spoke truth to power enough? And seeing that Emery has continued to silence these voices and had been silencing dissenting voices in the medical school, I decided that I would take matters into my own hands and send a letter to the entire listserv that they could not censor, that they could not ignore, which is what they had done, which was what they had always done. In the five years that I've been here, they always ignore, especially students of color's concerns. So this was my way to take back that agency, to separate myself from the silence of my peers and institution, and also my small fight for the Palestinian people. That's one of the reasons (laughs) that I wrote this letter. The other reason was to provide an opportunity for those who did stand in solidarity, who shared my pain, to separate themselves as well. And I think that was one of the amazing things that happened after I sent this email, which I actually didn't really expect. At the end of the email, there was like a call to action for my peers and other folks to separate themselves from the silence of their institution, because our silence makes us complicit, right? And so it was also an opportunity, I think, to find some kinship in that. And like I said, one of the amazing things, the unexpected things that happened was that several hours after I sent that email, a solidarity letter came out from my 
peers in the medical school that was signed by almost 200 students, Mm -hmm. which is almost 50% of the student body. And yet the administration ignored it, which goes to show that institutions are not built to foster or uplift their students. In the end, their own self-interests predominate. But I think just the power of having those students say that we also dissent, we also condemn this genocide, we also stand in solidarity with our Palestinian siblings, was a small win in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. It sounds cliche, but it, it is so much truth to it, of like the courage that one person shows can help others who feel scared. Right. That you're, you're safer in numbers. Absolutely. Also, is what I see. And I think this actually, this whole incident really demonstrated that is when we stand together, they cannot tear us apart Mm -hmm. and they cannot take us down. I think if that solidarity letter did not come out, I would have been expelled. Mm. And I think if we didn't get the community who had sent out like hundreds of emails, I probably would have been expelled. And so what this small example shows is that in numbers, Like, we cannot be defeated mm-hmm. in numbers. We will protect each other. I did not rely on the administration to protect me. You know, I didn't go to them for a reason, but I relied on my community and they came through. And I have not enough words of gratitude or thanks to the folks who, like, at even the smallest things, signing the letter, whether it was anonymous or not, or sending an email, what they did to protect me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like a lesson for me and a lesson for the folks who saw that, that like community will always come to protect you, even when those in power won't. Mm -hmm. So let's go to your letter. I would love to have you read an excerpt from it. Sure. So I'm going to read a few sections that are probably the more emotional pieces to this. And the reason that I'm choosing that is because in these types of conversations, and especially in medicine and healthcare, Emotion is seen as like a unprofessional and unnecessary component to two conversations like this. And the reason that I'm also choosing, and the reason that I wrote it this way too, you know, you feel, I hope when people read this letter, they feel the pain and the frustration and the anger. I could have written an informational letter and it was informational, um, but I chose to also include some statements that I think these are some of the statements that people came after me for, Mm -hmm. but highlighted the level of that pain and the level of frustration that Palestinians feel. So I'm going to read some of those highlights. Great. So one of the things, and this was speaking particularly to folks at the medical school, where I say, all you physicians at Emory, medical students at Emory, your acceptance of our murder defines your moral compass or lack thereof your silencing of Palestinian physicians who speak up and resist this genocide are a testament that you are indeed on the side of colonization, white supremacy, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid. That is what Emory School of Medicine represents. Make no mistake. Palestinians will remember this, and all those on the side of justice will remember this. And similarly, in another part of the letter, and this is actually just even hard for me to read, but I will read it. Again, speaking to those at Emory, I said, I will never forget your silence on this issue because I know without a doubt that if I was that Palestinian under the rubble, 
Not only would you not dig me out, you would have been the one to bomb my home and bury me under it and tell the world that I deserved it. Rather than condemn the bombing, you would instead send an email saying that both sides deserve mercy and compassion. You are no leaders, no mentors, no teachers of mine. There are no two sides to colonization, ethnic cleansing, or genocide. There is no complexity, no nuance. And the last section I will read, I think I wrote mostly for myself, if I'm being honest, and for Palestinians, and for those who have been standing in solidarity with us. So I wrote, the majority of Palestinians are Muslims, and our resistance, steadfastness, and overwhelming compassion and spirit of justice rooted in our faith is what has allowed us to survive this colonization for a century. We know our martyrs are not dead, and they watch us alongside our ancestors as we fight for our freedom. In Islam, whether you are alive or dead has to do with the state of your soul, not your body. For those unmoved and all you find in your heart is excuses to justify our death. Woe to you whose heart still beats. Woe to you for you are already dead. And let it be remembered that the Palestinians never lost. You cannot kill a people who know death is not the end. Our martyrs are not dead, and the Palestinians never bowed their heads, never stopped resisting colonization, occupation, and ethnic cleansing. We have never abandoned our cause. We will not abandon our land and never will. A better world, a world in which every single one of us is free, is being ushered in with or without you. Thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. I That last part that you just read made me think of something I saw that was, it said something to the sentiment of, if you want to understand what courage is, look at the Palestinians. I think that's something that really moves me. It's a little bit what you said before when I asked you about like being politicized, is like, what choice do you have except to be courageous, really? The other thing I wanted to ask you about, because in the first two excerpts you talked about this, it's this idea of like, that we see all the time, especially in the mainstream media, about both sides. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of, and this is the Howard Zinn, like you can't be neutral, right? Right. And if you, neutrality is the side of the oppressor. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, just for maybe listeners who like don't maybe hear your voice that often, a voice like yours that often, of how detrimental sort of the both sides, or when we say like, this is a war between right. Israel and Hamas, right. or this is a conflict. Can right. you talk a little bit about that? So, like you said, it is really damaging language to use that. There's several reasons for this. First of all, what we're seeing between Israel and Palestine has never been a conflict. This is a what has always been a genocide and a colonization and an illegal occupation. This is not a war. A war is something fought between two equal sides. We're talking about one of the most powerful militaries in the world, illegally occupying indigenous land putting 2 million Palestinians in Gaza in what is considered an open-air prison for 20 years. That's not a war. There's no two equal sides. Before October 7th, 2.4 million Palestinians in Gaza, 95% of those people didn't have access to clean water. 75% of those people were refugees already. The unemployment rate was over 60%. Palestinians were 
Actually, according to the World Health Organization and the UN, back in 2018, they released a report about Gaza saying that in 2020, Gaza would be unlivable. It's 2024. And I remember thinking at that time in 2018, when I was doing like political education teach-ins for my community about this, what would the world look like in 2020 and after for Gaza? So to conflate, to say that there are two equal sides when you have an indigenous population that has been stripped of every right, that has been funneled into refugee camps and what is essentially a concentration camp is what Gaza is, has no access to, they don't have their own military, they don't have their own governments, versus an imperial colonial state, one of the most well-funded, one of the strongest militaries in the world. That's not two equal sides. And even beyond that, when people say that there are two sides to this issue, they are legitimizing the side of the colonizer, that the colonizer has the right to self-defense, that the colonizer has the right to defend the land it stole. Those are the two fundamental problematic nature of saying that this is a conflict or a war, that there's two legitimate sides to this issue. How silly would we look today if we had a panel in today's age with indigenous people next to colonizers and we were like, defend your two legitimate sides. And it's really boggles my mind that people are like, yeah, that would be ridiculous. But when we do the same right. in the context of Israel and Palestine, people are like, oh, no, no, no. there are two legitimate sides. Right. Yeah. And I think all the time about institutions like Emory, who do land acknowledgments, who do these like performative actions to honor indigenous people. And, and I think to myself this like horrifying thought that I wonder if there will come a day when there are no Palestinians on Palestinian land and Emory will make some type of acknowledgement while knowing historically that they made sure that that would happen. Mm. ورصاص من حوله وجنوب وقف الطفل والحجارة أكوام وعيناه عزمة وصمود وعيناه عزمة وصمود Found in a mountain of parts Netanyahu told you just another child of the dark Clear it's gonna take much more than thousands to march More than a speech, more than a poem More than a track of music Gonna take more than a sit down with Basim Yusuf Even bringing back ambassadors Is an act that's useless Long as you pump oil for Apaches and the tanks they're using Freedom just beyond reach For people you cannot see He's wheezing and cannot breathe And screaming through the concrete Looking for his four children Leave structures that I wouldn't want to call buildings My fingers pointed at this government You all killed them 
told me that you wouldn't take up arms if those were your children Let me make the factor clear, if bombs were manufactured here And they want the land as theirs because of natural gas in there Feel death in the atmosphere while we hapless stand and stare And a little boy begs for his brother's strand of hair Truth is I don't know how anyone can live after digging for their dead kids buried under bricks Israel is a terror state, terrorists that terrorize I testify my television, televise, I'm telling lies This is not a war, it is systematic genocide But whatever they try, Palestine will never die This is Anna Milani for Indigo Radio And you are listening to an interview that I did just last week With Umema Mohammed, Palestinian community organizer medical and PhD student at Emory University in Atlanta and all around lovely human being. We're going to go back to her interview. Thanks again for listening today. You've talked a little bit about help is political and as someone in public health I totally agree with that. I remember in my doctoral studies I had a professor who said public health is not political. Mm-hmm. And it's like, my brain was like, what? I, you know, that just doesn't compute. And I think that there's this like claimed probably neutrality at the School of Medicine, mm-hmm. right? And of course we just talked about there's no neutral. Right. And that there is total destruction of infra- infrastructure, of health, food, water. These are all major public health issues. Mm-hmm. I think it would be important to talk a little bit about some of the destruction of the health infrastructure in Gaza, but also in Pal- I mean, just overall would be helpful. Uh, I think it's important to kind of for people to really hear that. Yeah. Uh, and then why it's really important for us to understand health is political. Yeah. So I'll start with the health is political aspect, and then go into what the health infrastructure in Palestine and Gaza looks like now. I think medicine has really convinced itself that it exists outside of structures of violence, that it exists outside of politics, which is so ironic because medicine and healthcare was segregated up until like four seconds ago. Even if you just look at the history of Grady Hospital, there's this great book written by a black physician called How We Do Harm that actually is specific to Grady. And he talks about how racism and capitalism interacts with and influences and dictates which patients matter more than others. And he talks about the history of segregation in Grady, which really wasn't integrated until like the 90s. So to say that health isn't political, that we haven't weaponized medicine and healthcare against communities of color, against indigenous communities, is just false. Um, It's like an ignoring the facts and the history of our healthcare in this country. Also, even today, when we look at who has access to healthcare, what's the quality of healthcare they have access to? These are all decisions that somebody decided for that person. So of course, health is political. Some patients' lives matter more than others. And that's a fact, even at Emory, we see that. And for people to say that like, no, we provide good care, it's just not true. Why do some patients only have access to certain hospital systems? Why do some patients have no primary care providers? Their only primary care is the ER. That's not true for all patients. Somebody's deciding who gets better care, who doesn't. Whose life matters more than this person's life. And Emory, absolute, all, institu- all of these medical institutions contribute and in fact like uplift 
these patterns and structures in medicine. So health has always been weaponized against communities of color. Even when we were looking at, not that long ago, they had found in an Irwin County jail that they were sterilizing migrant women against their consent in Georgia. And there's a history of the sterilization of women in color here in the Who was doing that? Physicians were doing that, mm -hmm. right? Who was experimenting on black and brown patients? Who still really experiments on black and brown patients? We, physicians are doing these things here and today and have historically done that. Yeah. So health and medicine is just another structural violence, structure of violence that, like you were saying, mimics the political economy of the country that we live in. So to think that racism and capitalism and colonization doesn't define our system of quote unquote care is just, you know, something that people convince themselves of. And Emory, like many medical institutions, does a very good job of convincing people that they play no part in upholding these structures of violence. Mm -hmm. And really, if you spend a, you know, a few days in these healthcare systems, it's clear as day. Mm -hmm. And so speaking about the weaponization of healthcare against the people, the weaponization of health and medicine against the people, that's a tool of colonial empires and imperial empires. And we've seen Israel do that in Palestine since 1948. Even when we look at the occupation of Palestine in the 60s, you know, my mother, for example, has polio. And at the time, there were reports that after Israel started occupying and colonizing the rest of, the, of Palestine, that they were weaponizing vaccines against Palestinians, not giving Palestinians false vaccines, providing inadequate health care, things like that. And as a result, you have Palestinians living with diseases back in the 60s that they hadn't seen before, that weren't as endemic. And of course, we see in Gaza specifically, after it went under siege in 2007, a land, air, and sea blockade by Israel, we saw, we began to see like a exponential destruction of the healthcare system. Medicines were not accessible. Things like antibiotics were hard to receive. Patients who required more than just primary care, who had chronic diseases, who had cancer, things like that were dying from waiting for treatment or were dying at the checkpoints waiting to leave Gaza to receive adequate treatment. Israel has weaponized medicine and healthcare against the Palestinians for decades. And of course now, I mean, since October 7th, we've seen, according to um, health officials in Palestine, there is no health infrastructure left. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left. Mm -hmm. The hospitals have been bombed. They're operating on patients with no pain medications. Women are forced to give birth even through C-section without any medication. People are dying from their diabetes. And if, you know, if Palestinians aren't being murdered by bombs and bullets, they're dying from untreated high blood pressure and their diabetes um, and their other chronic diseases. And that's a deliberate weaponization of health mm -hmm. and medicine. Mm -hmm. And the same tools, I mean, it's really terrifying to see that Israel has mimicked the same tools of the destruction of the health of indigenous people that the U.S. did too to its own indigenous people that it did to black folks, that it still does to people of color. Mm -hmm. What you're saying reminds me of when I was teaching just the power of words. I was teaching a public health, it's called health communication, and I was teaching students to write in public health. I did this whole exercise with them around Yemen. Okay. And we looked at cholera in Yemen mm -hmm. and cholera as you know, it's like completely preventable. Right. Right? I put two sentences on the board, and one was, children are dying of cholera in Yemen. And then the other sentence was something like, 
U.S.-backed Saudi bombing of the infrastructure in Yemen is destroying hospitals, mm -hmm. is destroying water systems, and now you have cholera. Right. And like the difference of how we speak about something or how we uh, explain disease, how we explain infections, how we explain certain conditions is so important. And you'll see these memes, I'm sure you've seen, like the New York Times will write a headline and someone will cross right. it out. Actually, right. it should say it like this. Right. And I think that's really powerful because otherwise it said something like, children are dying of famine. Right. As if there's some sort of invisible, like how, how did that happen? Exactly, right. And mm -hmm. if you dig more, this is where we are culpable. Right. Right here in the U.S., you know? I talk about this all the time in my classes too, that these are manufactured conditions. And as long as we keep talking about them, like you're saying, Palestinian children are dying of famine, as if that's like an inherent nature to black and brown people, mm -hmm. right? We, sub we, we end up associating these like inherent natures with these societies rather than realizing the truth of what's happening is that these are manufactured famines. Israel made that famine to kill more Palestinians. Even when we talk about healthcare here in the U.S., I'm taking a class that looks at mortality rates between white and black people here in the United States. And it's a similar issue where we prescribe that, you know, black folks have an inherently higher mortality rate in the United States as if we didn't manufacture the conditions to create that fact, mm -hmm. right? These are not things inherent to people's bodies or societies. These are manufactured instances of death. These are, this is what like we call slow death. Mm -hmm. When we manufacture these social conditions, we are, we, the intention is to destroy these communities of people's health over time. And that's exactly what happens and happened in Palestine. That's what's happens and happened here. Um, and these are tools of the state. These are intentionally done. Yeah, for sure. And then you get this sort of like, uh, blame the victim mentality of yeah. like, well, if they didn't choose this and this with their life conditions, or it's then blamed on some sort of genetic explanation right. of why this certain group has higher rates than this certain group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really dangerous because then we yeah. get into like biological determinism and all that, all that really dangerous stuff. Yeah. And I would say that as someone in public health, that's still really quite alive today. Oh Yeah. Uh, and somebody in who went through like medical education very recently, it's definitely still alive today. Mm. Yeah. yeah. In my position right now, I am doing a lot of traveling around North Georgia, and the historical context is really important to understand the present conditions. And so I've been learning a lot about Georgia history, mm -hmm. some of which maybe I kind of knew, and then some of which I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I may have been taught this, but obviously it didn't stick, of the uh, gold rush in Georgia, that one of the first gold rushes was here in, in northern Georgia, and that that is connected to the Trail of Tears. And I was really struck in your letter that you had mentioned the Trail of Tears and you make that connection. And so I was wondering if you could talk about these links of expulsion, genocide, and why it's really important to make those links. Yeah, I, I made that reference because I think going back to that example of somehow 
we have created this like narrative where we talk about indigenous people, one, as if it's in the past and if, as if colonization has ended when it's not true. We're still settlers like on this land. This land is still being colonized. Um, but we have some understanding. People seem to understand that there was a genocide. There was an ethnic cleansing that we did colonize this land. And the way that colonization and ethnic cleansing works is through mass murder and mass exile. And I have always seen pictures of exile from the Nakba. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians like leaving their lands on foot with just the belongings that they could carry in their arms, um, on their back. I saw those images from 1967 when my mom was forcibly exiled out of Palestine. And I have always related those pictures to the pictures I've seen of exile of indigenous people from their homes here um, on this land. And that parallel has always existed. I mean, for all indigenous people globally who have been colonized, they have stories of these like death marches where they're exiled out of their home. And what we've seen over the last few months is another death march of Palestinians being forced from, from Northern Gaza to their Southern Gaza. Tens of thousands of Palestinians walking with their children like on their back or their children walking alone, no parents holding each other like marching days to get to safety. And so that parallel felt important to make as we watch the world do the same to the Palestinians, what it's done to indigenous people over and over again over the last several hundred years. I was just in Cartersville, Georgia, and I went to a museum there. It's called the Barrow County Museum, mm. a small museum. And they had a little bit on the, the Cherokee and there was a painting of just what you're describing. I took a photo of it, and, and the Trail of Tears, the beginning of it was, I had the date as May 26, 1838, and there, there was a painting of people walking, kids, whatever belongings they have, and yeah, it's exactly what we're seeing right now. Right. And also what you've just described. Right. And I think this sort of goes into a broader conversation on international solidarity and the connection of these struggles globally. You know, we live in a society today where you cannot buy an orange from Kroger without that orange having a history probably of exploiting somebody's body, of unpaid and unjust labor, of migrant workers who are living in camps to harvest and grow these fruits. Violence in Western empire, especially here in the US, is so deeply embedded in our society that we cannot put gas in our cars without that oil likely coming from somebody's pillaged land, somebody's exploited labor. And on top of that, the US and other Western empires, including Israel, export violence. And so now we have this structural violence that transcends borders, and it's in fact globalized. And resistance efforts now must also be globalized. The same structures, the same narratives that allowed the murder and genocide of indigenous people in the US hundreds of years ago and is ongoing of course today, are the same structures, mechanisms, and narratives that are used to ethnically cleanse and genocide indigenous Palestinians today. These are recycled systems of violence and like I said, because they are now exported globally and embedded in every part of our society, 
It requires a global resistance effort. Mm -hmm. It requires us to understand the links between the struggles here and there. Because the same, the same manufacturers of violence are at the root of both. So that's why I made some of these global connections um, in my letter, specifically to the Trail of Tears. Yeah, yeah the essence of it is the same. Right. 18, what did I say, 1838, yeah. 1947, 2024, political, economic system. The thing I wanted to read, because I think it goes to just what you were saying here that I really liked in your letter, you said, the Palestinian struggle is a struggle against colonization, against military occupation, against white supremacy, against land theft, and against apartheid. And I wanted to ask you, and it's building off of also this importance of international solidarity, but would you say that then, when you're wording it like that, is it then all of our struggle? Absolutely. And how do we get people to kind of think more about that? I've gotten some interesting, obviously, responses from this letter. And one of them was that people felt hurt that I said that they were complicit in this genocide. And I remember thinking to myself, what an interesting response of all the things you're hurt that you felt like I said you were complicit. And I continually have these conversations with people who reference this as the war abroad or who do everything possible to distance themselves from this situation while they're drinking, for example, like a Coke product. And I'm like, what is happening in Palestine could not have happened without the political military and financial support of the United States. And that includes every single one of us who pay taxes, that we end up sending billions of dollars of aid to Israel, who buy products, who support and fund the making of bombs in Israel, who also sell products and settlements. When, for example, like the uh, US and the UN um, vetoes decisions for ceasefire, like where is your anger, where is your outburst? What is happening, what Israel is doing to Palestine could not have happened without the U.S.'s support and without our complicity in allowing that to happen. This is not something that's far away. This is something we manufactured in our own backyards. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the U.S. is a, the blueprint for how to use settler colonization to eradicate the indigenous population, take that land and build your capitalist empire on it. And Israel was like, bet we're going to mimic this exact strategy by the U.S. So of course it's going to be funded by the U.S. They see each other as like a kinship, as like sister states, right? The same origin story of this empire is the same origin story of Israel as an apartheid empire now. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about complicity, you know, I was talking about you can't buy an orange without being complicit in some type of violence. And that's something that you know, I literally think about daily is that the taxes I pay go to kill people like my family members to kill people across the globe. And we live, we built that world where it is, we are complicit. We built that world. We allowed that to happen 
or that every, even buying technology, right, contributes to violence somewhere else in the world. That is the world we built. That is what globalized and exported violence looks like. And so the fact that we are funding this with our everyday purchases and we're funding this with our taxes, and also we are normalizing this with our rhetoric, makes it our responsibility to dissent. Every single person who lives here. I was telling you how that those of us that do Indigo Radio, we're all teachers in some capacity. So whether that's on the college level, community college, and then we have a lot of us in the K through 12 schools. And one of our tasks is to constantly interrogate our own thinking mm -hmm. and what we've learned in the past, what we haven't learned, uh, what were the lies that we've been told. And when I look back, I think I was telling you this before we started recording, I never learned about Palestine. And then when I did, I think it's the experience I've, I've had with some of my students when I'll teach them something and they'll say something like, why wasn't I ever told about this? And I, I sort of had to say, like, why did I never learn about this? You know, and the Israeli lobby is so intensely strong in this country. Do you have any thoughts or advice to teachers like us that are trying, like we train teachers to be, about how do we try and switch that narrative in, in classrooms? And as you know, people, teachers, educators, activists, yourself, come under fire right. if we bring that up. right. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts around that. I mean, that's a great question. And I think people are always asking this question. First, I would always recommend to be plugged into like Palestinian-led movements, whether they're locally or globally or national. So for people who are interested in this work, like plug in locally. What are Palestinians doing in your city, on your campus? Um, what are ways you can support them in terms of like national campaigns or international campaigns like BDS or boycott divestment sanctions? What are Palestinians on the ground asking for? What are they calling for? So first and foremost, I think to plug into Palestinian led movements, what are Palestinians asking us to do? And in terms of the narrative change, I know this is like a simple answer, but I really feel that this is at the root of so much of the problems. There is no principled stance in a country this violence that doesn't require sacrifice. And so it requires courage to be part of this work. It requires courage for us to create like a world in which all of us are free. It requires courage and sacrifice. And we have to be committed. You know, I, I used to tell people all, all the time that like resisting empire or you know, being an anti-racist or resisting structural violence is not a decision you make one day and that's it. It's a decision you make every day. It is a commitment you must renew every day with every action, with every intention that you have. That is how we become more free. You know, so many people will sort of like message me privately and say like, you know, I, I hear you and I stand with you. And people are always like, what do you need from me? And I was like, what I need as a Palestinian is public displays of solidarity. And people are like, oh, actually, you know, I can't do that, but like, let me buy you a coffee. That doesn't protect us. What protects us is when we are courageous. Mm -hmm. When we say we will not accept violence against our family. We will not accept structural violence against any of our communities. To take that courageous step. And sometimes there are ramifications. But we mentioned at the beginning of this that one of the amazing things that happened in this letter is it showed that communities can protect each other. 
And if we really invest in our communities, we make those connections and we take principled stances together, the ramifications become less harmful against us. Maybe they do take your job, but maybe you've made a community of people who will make sure that you are well cared for until you find a new one. Mm -hmm. That is the world that we're building. Mm -hmm. That is how we care for each other. Again, I know that this is a simple answer, but it really is to have the courage to take that public principled stance and say, I won't accept anything less than the freedom of all people. Mm -hmm. And that includes Palestinians. Um, I would love to have you speak about this because we spoke about it a little bit before the recording was on around the purpose of being out in the street in marches. And I know for myself, it took me courage to go to my first march in Little Brattleboro years ago because I was self-conscious or I'm embarrassed. I think about that where I am now, I'm like, that's so silly. But that's something that happens where people are like, oh no, I can't. Because we're in the belly of the beast of individualism, oh, yeah. right? And not community, backing each other up. I mean, in certain spaces, of course, you see that. And so it takes people a little like push. Right. Or I've also heard, uh, well, what does a march do anyway? Mm-hmm. What's the point of it? Oh, you're going to go like outside the Israeli consulate, nothing, they're not going to do anything. These are the things that sometimes you hear as excuses or sort of, I like this, you said distancing oneself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about what has been the importance to you or what you think of Mm -hmm. a march being out on the street here in Atlanta? Yeah, so I think there's actually two important points that you brought up. So in terms of Going back to when you were talking about um, when you were younger and you went to your first march being scared, something that I push back even in organizing circles that I see young people, people all across the board feeling afraid to join movements because they feel, quote unquote, they don't know enough. Or maybe they're going to do something wrong. And I always tell people, first and foremost, the most important thing is you join the movement. We're going to do things wrong all the time, but we are committed to learning. We are committed to doing it better next time. We are committed to say, it's okay to make mistakes. I will do better. It is only human to make mistakes. And to push back on this idea that they don't know enough. I tell people all the time when they when they tell me this about Palestine, I'm like, is Palestine colonized? Yeah. Oh, then you know enough. Then the liberation of Palestine should be part of the rhetoric, should be part of, no matter what anybody says in response, is Palestine still colonized? Is our Palestinians undergoing a genocide? Yes and yet. Okay, you know enough. That should be enough for you to join this movement, to join a collective liberation movement that transcends Palestine, really. So that's one point. And then in terms of people who push back on, like, what do marches do? What do these things do? You know, I've made a point to wear my kufiya like, almost every day on Emory's campus in the last few months. And I do that for several reasons, and I think this ties into why marches matter, why public demonstration matters. One, for me, to separate myself from the silence of my institution. It matters, no matter what I look like to people, the thing that matters most to me is people know what I stand for. And to also make other people feel seen. I think what's like amazing about how small the act of wearing the kufiya in public is, is that you get people out of nowhere sometimes who are like, thank you for wearing that. Or I see you. Or hey, I know we don't know each other, but like, let's get connected. 
because I see what you stand for. I find kinship in that. And I think same with marches and demonstrations. These are displays, even if they're small. Like back in Indianapolis, like 10 years ago when I was organizing these marches, we would barely have like 15, 20 people come out to a Palestine protest. And if we had like 50, we were like, oh my God, because it was a small act of defiance that there is a group of people who reject violence, who reject apartheid and reject ethnic cleansing and reject genocide. And we were making ourselves, we are separating ourselves from a society who has normalized that and allowed that. And I think marches and demonstrations, sure, they're not gonna shut down the Israeli consulate as much as we, maybe one day they will if the marches get big enough. But what they do do is tell society, we will not go back to normal until this violence is over. We will not stop, stop attempting to disrupt the normalization of violence against our family members, against our siblings, globally in here, until this ends. And so we will march, we will disrupt, we will publicly display our solidarity with Palestine, um, with communities of color here, with other global communities being oppressed by the same structures. And I think it is that powerful act of distancing yourself from empire, saying, I do reject this, and I am making a point to do this collectively. It matters. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were talking about how um, at the last, at one of the protests we went to last week for Rafah, there was actually a journalist from Gaza tuning in. And I cannot know what it felt like to see people across the world saying, even if it's the smallest thing that we can do is publicly reject the genocide against your family and against your people, then we will do it. And we've seen actually plenty of journalists from Gaza like making comments about these videos saying it is amazing to mm. see thousands of people marching in some places that people are taking to the streets constantly it is a constant rejection of the violence of empire mm -hmm. and that matters in the grand scheme of things it matters in narrative shifts it matters in letting our politicians and leaders in this country know that like we will never let this be normalized mm -hmm. yeah i wonder if you actually could talk a little bit about emory and whatever you want to say about that and like mm -hmm. how they have gone about this, which in ways mirrors some of these other universities that we've seen. Maybe if you could, you could talk a little bit about that and the situation for Muslim students, Palestinian students, and what you would want to see yeah. from Emory. Absolutely. So I can talk about the climate on Emory's campus around Palestine and Palestinian solidarity. Honestly, it's not that different from all of these other universities that we're watching. One, there is a, just generally, there has been a repression of Palestinian voices and, Palestin and those who stand in solidarity for decades at Emory. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not something that just started after October 7th. Now things got heightened, of course, after October 7th, after displays of Palestinian solidarity increased, after students began to march. What we've been seeing is a targeting of Palestinian students and those in solidarity on campus. And in fact, I actually encourage people to go. About two weeks ago, CARE Georgia released a report. Um, they um, released a press release and also a 12-page report documenting all of the incidences of anti-Palestinian and Islamophobic hatred at Emory's campus just in the last three months. And you can actually just Google this report. And it's 
anonymized for the students, but it shows that these attacks are coming from both peers and faculty. So there's, but that's always been a history at Emory. Um, you know, even when I talked to Palestinian students who graduated more than like six, seven years ago, they were going through the same things. And this is, has always been common. In fact, at my old institution, when I was an undergrad at um, Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis, I was almost similarly expelled for doing an event on campus about the about child detention, about the detention of children by Israel in Palestine, because there's this wrong conflation between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. And that is really at the, the crux, the main tool they use to silence Palestinian voices and those in solidarity is they conflate resistance against Zionism to anti-Semitism, which is incorrect. And in fact, a bill passed here in Georgia, HB 30, making those conflations, increasing the legal ramifications for talking about Palestine. This bill, though, has been passed in many states. And similarly, at you know, in terms of Emory specifically, we have also seen like messages from the president of the university, Fenves, who one has clearly taken a side on this issue and has valued some lives more than others. Needless to say, it was not Palestinian lives and has also parroted this false conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, even going so, so far as to condemn a student protest as anti-Semitic for chanting things like free Palestine and from the river to the sea, which is a land back statement. <laughs> but that narrative is so dominant and is used and is weaponized against Palestinians to re repress their voices, to expel them, to fire them, to you know justify whatever punitive measures against these students. Um, and Emory has a history and a legacy of doing that, as do other institutions. Um, so Emory, just like its sibling institutions, have adopted the same frameworks to repress these student voices. And in terms of the medical school, you know, Muslim students, you know, similarly, there was no acknowledgement really of the Palestinian lives lost, despite the fact that we're now over 30,000 Palestinians martyred, more than half of them children to the point where people are starting to call this, whatever we've seen in the last few months, like the massacre of children, 15,000 children. I don't even know if people can really wrap their minds around like what that means. Mm -hmm. And yet we continually see a condemnation of people who speak out against this genocide mm -hmm. and a weaponization of whatever tools they have at their disposal to make the lives of these students or faculty, whoever, who dare dissent miserable um, and the medical school, you know, there have been students who have tried to mobilize with the administration against these things. And in fact, there's been a rise of Islamophobia, of pro-genocidal rhetoric in the medical school, even among the faculty. There are faculty at the School of Medicine who have openly posted genocidal statements saying things like there are no innocent people in Gaza, just things that absolutely promote genocide. There is no accountability for these faculty. These are the same faculty who are in charge of our grades, who are in charge of our clinical learning, who quote unquote teach us how to care for folks. Again, it's not unique, unfortunately, to Emory, but Emory absolutely holds these same systems of violence, utilizes these same narratives of repression against Palestinians, um, and actually protects folks who target Palestinian students or Muslim students who dox Palestinian students and Muslim students mm -hmm. and they, you know, whereas they will fire you or expel you for saying things like free Palestine or from the river to the sea, faculty can openly say 
there are no innocent people in Gaza and there's mm-hmm. no retaliation. Yeah, and I was thinking about, you said in your letter, you had said that about Emory that the silence is deafening. I remember myself thinking that I couldn't imagine being Palestinian on this campus. That was my first thought. And I was thinking too about what were you just saying and the incredible dehumanization of mm-hmm. Arab people, of Muslim people, of Palestinians, that of course goes back decades and decades. And that, that silence is also part of that dehumanization. Absolutely. I mean, Emory has made it very clear that some lives matter more than others here at Emory University. And that's exactly what these statements are doing. I mean, they're dehumanizing populations of students, black and brown Muslim Palestinian students, and saying there are some lives that matter more than yours. You know, what's interesting, too, is when I brought this up to the administration, when you put it like that, you know, they're like, oh, that's not our intention. Our intention was X, Y, Z. I'm like, well, that is what you did. What you have done is you have made a stance, and that's what I said in my letter, that some lives matter more at Emory University than others. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not black and brown lives. And that's exactly what they're doing. Is there any presence of Jewish Voice for Peace on this campus? That's a great question. I know that there are folks on this campus who are part of like the local Jewish Voice for Peace. In terms of there being a campus chapter, I don't believe so. Okay. Yeah, but there's certainly anti-Zionist Jews on this campus. And in fact, I don't know if you saw the zine that they published, um, this amazing 15-page, I think, zine that they published last semester. And it was anonymous, but it was by um, Jewish folks here at Emory who identified as anti-Zionist. Um, and they wrote these letters to Fenves and talked about mm-hmm. you know, their Jewishness as it relates to anti-Zionism and why they stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. So there is an effort here on campus, but Emory is a place where like, a culture of fear is cultivated intentionally in order to mm-hmm. silence and make folks afraid to stand in solidarity with Palestine that transcends like any identity. Everybody is scared. And you see that from the medical school to the undergraduate level. I think I'm trying to ask a, a question around how we both hold our identities. That's where I first started with you, sort mm-hmm. of like our historical identities, how we both honor those and how we also come together across identities. Yeah. I always start conversations like this with a reminder that All of these liberation movements, whether it's Black Lives or the liberation of Palestine, are collective liberation movements. We don't conceptualize the liberation of Palestine without the liberation of Jewish people, without the liberation of all people on that land. There is nobody who is advocating for the liberation of Palestine outside of this idea. Even when we talk about Black Lives Matter here, the liberation of Black folks will liberate everybody. Everybody benefits from liberation movements. And there's, of course, a lot of literature about how do people in power or how do like dominant groups benefit from these liberation movements. Even if it is a de-shackling of the soul, you benefit from these liberation movements. And in terms of how do we negotiate with our identities, you know, especially when some of us are coming from, might be white, and who have these legacies. I have organized for many years with Jewish folks, white folks, people from all identities who have always conceptualized these liberation movements as collective. And I think what's, what is the problem is often white folks feel that they are like adjacent to these movements rather than critical members. 
They see these as movements to support rather than a movement for their liberation too. And I think that's actually where some of the difficulty might come for people is feeling like I'm just here to support this movement rather than feeling like this movement is a collective liberation, which includes the liberation of me mm-hmm. and my people. And it includes accountability for our legacy. It is an opportunity for us to build a different world, to build a different legacy. And so that's kind of where I enter this conversation when people sort of ask me like, you know, how do I get involved in this movement as a white person? How do I X, Y, and Z? I'm like, really, it's about beginning to understand what does this movement mean to you? Like, these are not things to just tap in and out of. These are movements meant to be for the liberation of your spirit, for your soul, to build the world that you also want to see, to change the legacy that maybe like is behind you that you might be accountable to. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's like this betrayal of our ancestors or to say, I don't want that. Right. So then what am I going to do? And I, and I agree with you that it is about uh, ourselves are wrapped up in that liberation also. Right. Uh, sort of as we wind down here, I just want to ask you, what do you want people to know? You call Palestine your home. Can you tell us about Palestine and Palestinians? Of course, there's so much to say. <laughs> I think when I think of what it means to be Palestinians, I think about the spirit of generosity of Palestinians. I really think that like at the core of what it means to be Palestine, like that shows up in so many of our interactions, even with the way that we have cultivated the land for centuries. You know, you'll hear Palestinian families, like my family were Falahin, they were like villagers, they were farmers before they were exiled. And the way that my family talks about their relationship to the land, the way a lot of Palestinians talk about their relationship to the land, these trees that they farm are our family members. You know, when they destroy these trees, they take a part of our heart and our soul. You know, 800,000 Palestinian olive trees have been destroyed by the IDF. You know, olive trees take 20 years to mature and 20 more years to bear fruit. These are parts of our families. Just generally, there's an interaction of generosity and love when we cultivate the land that way. When we like see these other living things as parts of our family that under our care. And that transcends our interactions with each other. I think Palestinians have demonstrated mutual aid and not leaving people behind. They demonstrate mercy and compassion under the worst conditions. We are watching in this genocide, new families being made of Palestinians who have never met each other, taking children under their wing, other children taking other people's children under their wings. Palestinians have always demonstrated what it means to choose to be generous and merciful, even when everything around you is the opposite. And even when I think about my interpersonal relationships with my family, that we always prioritize, are you fed? Are you hungry? Are you warm? Do you want something to drink? It is like so embedded in our culture and in interactions. Even the simple act of like hosting someone to your house, it's like not something that just is casual for us. We take it really seriously that you feel that you are in your home, whatever that means. You know, and that's something that we grow up learning. How do we make sure when people enter your home, they are entering their home? And I, I think, One of the things that is actually coming out of this horror 
that we're seeing from Palestine is people are bearing witness to that. Mm-hmm. And I see people like on TikTok with these like reaction videos, like sobbing, watching people give the last bit of their flour to another family, knowing that that means they have to eat like grass and cow feed for the next few days. But if I were to say there's like anything to learn from the Palestinians, sorry, that's okay. That it's like we really demonstrate how to take care of other people. And we often choose that at the expense of ourselves, but that's like, that's what community is. That's how you care for each other. And I really think there's lessons to take from them on what mutual aid and abolition and transformative justice can look like. Because under those conditions, what choice do you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to say or anything that you would like to say to the general public, to Emory, to the Biden administration, to your own people? Is there anything that you want to say? I think this just goes back to the excerpt that I read about our victory. And I have to continually remind myself of this, but don't think that Palestinians have lost. In every moment that we decide to care for each other, in every moment we decide to resist, is a victory. And they can never take that away from us. They can take all of our land. They can take all of our children. But they can't take, like I said, that spirit of generosity. They can't take our resistance. They cannot take our souls. I ask people to pull on that spirit of resistance. We are working to find the courage that no matter what happens in retaliation, you will not have lost if you've took a principled stance to protect another person. That is victory in itself. That decision is a choice to be victorious under empire and under the normalization of this violence. So this is a reminder that we, we have not lost. We will not lose, no matter what they do to us, because our victory is in the choices that we make to care for each other and protect each other, and they can never take that away from us. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and everything that you can teach us too, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me and giving me a platform to speak. That's it for today's Indigo Radio. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And a huge thank you again to to Umayma Mohammed, Palestinian MD and PhD student at Emory University. And we're going to go out with a song that Umayma had sent to me. Let me
رفرف يا طير رفرف فوق بلادنا غني يا طير 